Thank you, Mary. Can you read for us from verse 1 to verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? All right. So finally, believers, we ask and admonish you in the Lord Jesus that you follow the instruction that you received from us about how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are actually doing, and that you excel even more and more, pursuing a life of purpose and living in a way that expresses gratitude to God for your salvation. For you know what commandments and precepts we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, that you be sanctified, separated and set apart from sin, that you abstain and back away from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, being available for God's purpose and separated from things profane, not to be used in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God and are ignorant of his will, and that in this matter of sexual misconduct, no man shall transgress and defraud his brother, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we have told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness, to be dedicated and set apart by behavior that pleases him. So it says in verse 7, For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness, to be dedicated and set apart by behavior that pleases him, whether in public or in private. Okay, thank you, Mary, for reading. And so we see here that Paul is saying, finally, my believers, right? So now that we've talked about the foundations, now that we've talked about what it means to be born again, right? What it means to come into the kingdom of God. Now that we've talked about the proofs that your salvation is is authentic and that your salvation is secure in God. And now that we've seen what it takes to be nourished, not just to be born, but to be nourished and to be established. I now, I now want you to move on to the ultimate mark of maturity, right? It says, finally, believers, we ask and admonish you in the Lord Jesus that you follow the instruction. Okay, at this point, I will just read from the New King James so that it's just easier for us to, to pick out the point. Finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, right? So for them, becoming Christians was what you might call a step of faith. But Paul is saying that that step of faith is supposed to mature into a walk, right? right? Into an ever-increasing walk, into an ever-maturing walk for the purpose of pleasing God. I want you to know that the purpose for which he wants them to work in holiness is so that they can be pleasing to God, right? And then he says in verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So you can read verse 2 to say also that you know what commandments that the Lord Jesus gave you. The only thing is that the Lord Jesus himself did not give it to them personally. The Lord Jesus gave, gave um, it to the apostles or rather gave it to the Christians, to the believers, through the apostles. So it was practically God commanding them. And here we see, you know, some of the core issues, right, of maturing as a Christian. 
which is first of all pleasing God, right? And then receiving commandments from him. You see, there's none of us that's going to work with God long enough. Because we said that even though faith begins as a step, God expects that it matures into a walk, right? And there's none of us who's going to walk with God long enough without realizing that God wants to be pleased with us. Man is nothing if he's not pleasing to God, okay? And then we're, not, we're also going to realize very quickly that God dishes out commandments. God commands he doesn't just advise. He doesn't just suggest. He doesn't just command. And what one thing I want us to, what I want us to discuss a little bit is, why is that the case, right? Because if you've attempted to preach the gospel to to a, to a skeptic, for example, the fact that God wants to be pleased, right, um, can often be turned on his head to to um, to accuse God of narcissism, right? Why is it all about him, right? How about my own pleasure? So that's on one side. On the other hand, um, if the relationship we have with God is a relationship of love, right? And community and family and friendship and fellowship, why does God command? Why does God command? In fact, the commandments of God are seen very clearly right from the beginning of scripture. Right, that after Adam had realized that oh he had this wonderful garden, he had so much as at his disposal. It wasn't long after he realized that that the Lord came to him and commanded him about what to eat and what not to eat. Something apparently so trivial, right? Apparently trivial enough at least that Eve didn't think too deeply before she violated that command. And yet the violation of that command is the reason why everything went haywire. What that tells us is that it's important for us to understand why God commands us, right? And why pleasing God is an important part of walking with God. So would you like to discuss or just share your thoughts on any of these points, right? Why does God command us? Why are the commandments of God necessary? Why is it important that we hold on to the commands of God for life, right? And why is pleasing God at the heart of a Christian's life? Or rather, has God commanded you before? And did you think, okay, this command makes sense, or I don't understand this command? Why does God command and why is it important to please God? Mm -hmm. um, if I can speak generally, right? Yes. I would say that, um, first of all, God made us, right? And mm -hmm. as as everyone would say, right, the person who knows how a thing should be used or how we think um, the best way to use a thing, like if you make a computer, you make a chair, you make something. You made it for a reason, right? Yeah. So you're the best person to say how that thing should be used. Um, you know, you're the best person to give instructions on um what that thing is used for and you know, make a manual for it and you know, that kind of thing. So I would say that because God made us, because God created us, then he mm -hmm. can command us. So tell us what to do. Yeah. 
that's quite apt, right? I want us to note that very first point, right? We are we are his by creation. There's none of us that is original to ourselves, right? And that is why it is futile for us to to for us to live for ourselves. Because we didn't create ourselves. In fact, we were not even consulted before we were created, right? Um, God, in his sovereignty, in his great choice, he formed us. And when he formed us, he had a certain specification in mind. And God has not downgraded that specification, even because of sin. So the first reason why God commands us, and the first reason why it is important to please God, is that we are his, we belong to him by creation. And that's the and that's the point that every man that lives on earth needs to come to terms with. Every man that lives on earth needs to come to terms with that question of how did I come here? Right? Before you start answering the question of what was I made for, you know, where am I going? How can I survive? You know, you need to, if you're going to work with God accurately as he deserves, you need to answer the question, how did I get here? I certainly did not make myself, right? And I certainly was not born merely by the will of the people who had intercourse and gave birth to me, right? Because um, the the process of birth is so mystical that that your parents have absolutely no control of which variation of child could have come out, right? So if I was self-made, then I could have claims, right, that my own demands, that my own desires are the ultimate. But if I'm not self-made, then I need to recognize that the fact that I'm not self-made means that my own desires, even though they are real and I can feel them, they are not really ultimate. Because we're going to come to the topic of sexual immorality and, and in our day, a lot of people cannot understand why God commands abstinence, right? Or commands that sex only be used in marriage. But you see, if I was not, if I'm not original to myself, it means that my desires are my desires are borrowed at best, right? They are meant to be stewarded, not to be followed. Yes. So, like you just said, God commands because He's Creator, and as Creator, He's the one who has the template for life. He's the one who has the patterns for life. He's the one who knows how life is, is meant to be sustained. He's the one who knows the, the pathways that lead to more life and the pathways that lead to death. God is worthy of being obeyed because he's creator. And that's why he commands. And so any, every time that God comes to us and instructs us, one of the things that helps us um, commit ourselves to God's commandments is our understanding that God commands because of his nature, right? Because he is good. So that's why he commands. And then because he is good, everything he commands is for our good. God does not command us for because he takes pleasure in our suffering or in our abstinence or in our self-denial. Even though we feel a sense of sacrifice or even a sense of pain when we obey the commands of God, it's not our heroic, our sense of heroism, right, that pleases God. It is rather the fact that the very thing that God commanded us to do against our will, right, 
is born out of the goodness of God, the knowledge of God that this is the right way for you. This is the good thing for you. And so if we do not obey God, we may never get to see the goodness of God in his fullness. We may only experience the goodness of God in part. There is an aspect of the knowledge of God, of the goodness of God, that we may never get to experience unless we obey him. Right? So that's why God commands. It's very important for us to know that, right? That we are his by creation. Now, there's a, there's a second important reason why God commands, right? Because if we're only his by creation, you know that creation is has been downgraded, right? It's functioning from a downgraded possibility because of sin. So in sin, man rebelled against God and decided to go on the, on the path of independence, right? And you see, when man rebelled against God, God did not prevent the rebellion. Now, it's very important for us to realize that God is spirit. You know, this is the revelation that Jesus said that you must have of God if you're going to worship him the way he wants in spirit and in truth. You must realize that God is spirit. And that revelation is important because we are not spirit. We have a spirit, but we live in a very physical world. We have a spirit that allows us contact God, right? That allows us relate to God, that allows us experience God, but that's not where our possibilities end. We have an entire physical realm to relate with. And it's possible for you to look in the physical realm and you're looking for God in the physical realm and you don't find him. The reason you're not going to find him with your physical senses is because he is spirit. And the fact that his spirit makes it easy or possible rather for us to Forget that he is, that he's the creator, that he's the designer, that he's there. It makes it easy for us to think that the things that we can see with our eyes and with our and feel with our senses are the ultimate reality. But if God is spirit, it means that ultimate reality is captured in the realm of the spirit. Now, I don't intend to go into um, the complexity or any kind of complexity. I just wanted to make the point that God is spirit. Now, if God is spirit, he means that God does not intervene on the earth directly, right? If you if you pray for a breakthrough, right? If you pray for a healing, it's not likely that you're going to see God appear on the earth for that healing to be appropriated to you, right? God is not like your, your earthly doctor, that you need to go to their office, you need to knock, you need to book an appointment, you see them, you have a conversation with them, they schedule you for a surgery or whatever, and then you, you receive from them what they have to offer. If God does not intervene directly on earth, it means that the way that God intervenes on earth is by exercising his authority, or another, another word for authority is influence. It means that if God cannot exercise his influence, his his authority, his his life, his goodness will not be seen on earth. Yes, this is important. And it's important to contrast it with the way that Satan operates. Now, it's not that Satan is the opposite of God, no. Right? But at least on earth, Satan is the, is the representative of everything that is anti the nature of God. Right? The way that Satan operates is also by influence. But the way he seeks, because if you look, in your family, if you look in your village, if you look in Nigeria, 
if you look in Germany or wherever you are, you won't see Satan, right? But if you look closely, you see his his ideology, his influence, his impact, his thinking, his his philosophy. You see it infiltrated everywhere. So how is it possible that a being that is not physical, right, can have such an influence? The way God seeks to gain influence into our in our lives is by exercising his authority. When God created, he didn't begin by getting his hands dirty, right? He started by speaking to creation. So creation has to be wired in such a way that it, it listens to God's voice. It, it obeys God's voice. If that was not, if that arrangement was not possible, that creation didn't listen to God's voice, then creation wouldn't have become what it is today. So God operates by authority because he has chosen to stay in the spirit realm. Now, in the in the sphere of people, right, in the sphere of humanity, in the sphere of men and women, the only way that God's influence can be seen on the earth is that there are people who are under God's authority, who are willing to listen to him and to live out his instructions. That's the only way the influence of God can be seen. If you're trusting God for a move of God in your heart, in your life, in your space, the only way that move will happen is not so much that you prayed very long, even though you're praying very long can precipitate the move. But the actualization of the move of God in your space is that you, you, you were open, you were able to hear the voice of God, hear the direction of God, hear the instruction of God, and you were able to obey him. Yes. As you do so, your life becomes an extension of the authority of God. As you do so, your life becomes an extension of the influence of God. That's how God exerts influence. The way Satan exerts influence is that he seeks, he uses witchcraft. And by witchcraft, I mean control. He seeks to control. Satan knows that he has nothing to offer anybody that will be appealing to anybody, that will make anybody submit to his authority. So what he does is that he entices. He seduces. And whenever it is that you yield to an enticement or an or, or a seduction of the enemy, he then tries to base, he, 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 he tries to use that act of submission to his enticement to bring control and manipulation into your life so that you are trapped. And in your state of being trapped, you have no other choice but to serve his purposes, to be controlled by him, right? That's why you 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 read that, you know, a demon can possess someone and the person possessed begins to speak certain things based on the influence of that demon or begins to act out certain things based on the influence of that demon. That is illegitimate control. God does not control any of us. So even though God wants you to be holy and God wants to make you holy, he cannot impose holiness on you. No, he can't. Even though he has saved you and he has made you his child, he cannot impose holiness on you. It is true that God has a good plan for your life and God has a good plan for my life, right? And God's plans for us are good. But God, by his nature, does not control. He cannot impose his plans on our lives, whether we like it or not. What he does is that he visits, he visits, he keeps coming. 
He's tender. He's gentle. He's faithful. He keeps coming. Sometimes he allows us to suffer, to reach the end of our stubbornness, of our rebellion, so that we can be willing to take his offer. So it means that if I'm going to be holy, it's going to be because I accept to be. You see? And so instead of God coming and imposing his life on me, what he does is that he commands, says, go this way and go that way. Don't go this way. Don't go that way. So that if I submit to his influence upon my life, then I'll begin to see his goodness, right? And, and the characteristics of his influence manifested in my own life. Do you see that? Sorry. I went a very long route to show us what I, what Uduak said <laughs> at the beginning, right? That part of the reason why God commands and why he's worthy to be obeyed, right, is that we are his by creation. He's the creator. The second compelling reason for Christians, why God commands us and why he's worthy to be obeyed and the thing that should make us obey, obey him, it's not just that we are his by creation. That is sufficient reason, right, for us to obey God. But we are also his by redemption. So it's not only that he created us, right? When we fell, all of us, and we fell into sin, and we were born in sin, he redeemed us, he purchased us, he bought us back. So that even if you don't want to obey God, on the basis of the fact that he gave you breath and he created you, you are his property in redemption. Legally. Now, it's not as though God comes, you know, with the, with the books to claim legal, legal rights and say, you must. Now, it's not as though he can't. He can do it and he reserves the right to insist on what he paid for. Right? But it's the fact that he has chosen not to walk that way with any of us. Rather, his hope is that we will recognize that not only were we created, we were bought back, we were redeemed. And the knowledge of the fact that, okay, whatever life it is that I wanted to live, that life, that life, I gave it up. I lost it when I chose God's offer of redemption, right? When I chose, it's just like, it's just like you have two job offers, you know, and then in one job, you're going to be doing X, Y, Z, and maybe X, Y, Z is your dream, right? And then in another job, you're going to be doing ABC, and ABC is not your dream. ABC is the dream of the company that hired you. You see, you, 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 you still had a choice before you chose one of the offers. If you had chosen the offer on the left, you would have done X, Y, Z, what you wanted. But maybe the offer on the right offered you way more money, way more health insurance, way more life insurance, a very wonderful car, offered you so much that you went for ABC, right? You've been, your at least your working hours have been bought. And so you cannot afford, if you are reasonable, to spend your working hours doing X, Y, Z when you have been paid for, right? To do ABC. So that's why God commands us, right? Because we're not, we're his by creation. By his goodness, he decided to give us the gift of life to bring us into life, to enjoy the benefit of being a living soul, the benefit of, of, of knowing love, of knowing beauty, 
of knowing everything wonderful that life has to offer. But when all of that broke down because of sin, he paid the price. Right? He bought us into his family so that we can be his. And that's why he's worthy to, to be obeyed. The first reason of creation is the reason why he has the right to command. The second reason of redemption is the reason why we, if we are reasonable, should obey him. So because I'm a Christian, I'm no longer mine. I have been bought. So even what I call my desires, right? What I call my natural instincts, they are now secondary. They are now supposed to be submitted to the will of God. They are now supposed to be submitted to the authority of God. And you see, unless I make that decision, I cannot go further in my work with God. Because I don't realize that I've been paid for. Okay? Does that make sense to us? Okay? So then I'll continue from verse 3, right? So to answer my question, the question that I posed at the beginning of the Bible study, right, which is for a Christian, right, that has been saved, that has been bought, that has been established in the foundations of faith, of love, and of hope, what is the next thing? The next thing is for that believer to begin to search out, to begin to find out why did God make me? For what purpose? What is his will? What is it that pleases him? What is it that glorifies him? Because that is the only reasonable, meaningful thing left to do. You've already been bought. And the life that you are supposed to live has been blotted out. The life of rebellion, the life of pursuing your own will, the, the life of pursuing your own path, doing as you please, that life has already been blotted out. Right? So the only thing left for you now is to ask the question, what is the will of God? And that's what verse 3 says, that for this is the will of God. This, like I've always pointed out, is one of the few clear places where the will of God is dictated to us. That if you want to find out why does why did God make the investment of creation in you, and why did he make the investment of redemption in you, why did he choose you? Look at the world today. There are billions of people who do not know God. Some of them are smart. Some of them are beautiful. Some of them are even doing good things. But they don't know God. And if Christianity is true, it means that they don't have an eternity with God to look forward to. Yet in the midst of all of that, God chose you. So it's important that we take seriously scriptures like this that show us why God chose us. He said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, this is where... Um, translations like the amplified which we read earlier helps us out right verse 3 says this is the will of god that you be sanctified that you be separated that you be set apart from sin so one of the things the the major thing that god wants to do in your life and in my life is that he wants to begin to conform us towards his nature right because he has a purpose for us he has a plan for us now, there's a lot that is captured in the purpose of God and in the plan of God for our lives. One of it is that we are supposed to represent him. We're supposed to reveal him to the rest of creation. We're supposed to wield his authority, that dominion mandate that was given to, 
to to Adam. That dominion mandate is multifaceted. And there's an aspect of that that God wants us to wield. He wants us to express him. He wants us to be his physical manifestation to the physical creation. He wants us to host different measures of his person, of his life, of his love, of his glory. And because of the nature of who God is, because God is in a class of his own. That's what it means that God is holy. He's set apart. He's in a class of his own. Everyone who will be used by God, indeed, will need to be set apart also. Right? And the reason why God informs us that this is his will, like we've said, is because he's not going to impose it on us. Even though he's his will, it is his will for us. We will have to make the choice. Right, so the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us is what makes us the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? But then we will have to make a choice that this temple will be a pure temple. This temple will be a set apart temple. This temple will be separated to God's intention, to God's ideas, to His purpose. This temple will please the Lord. He paid for me. He gave me more than I could ever ask. So now let my life, let my life be for his glory and for nothing else. It's not possible to have a mixture and to still have God. Because God is on a class of his own. If you have a scale of goodness, and that scale is from 1 to 100, right? God is outside the scale. That scale is just for created beings. The goodness of God is beyond that scale. He's set apart like that. And so his will for us is that we be sanctified. What this tells us is that every instruction that God gives us is for our sanctification. It's not so much that he's trying to deny us of good things. It's rather the opposite, that true sanctification will begin to know what good really is. Yes, every instruction that God gives us is for our sanctification. So just in case you're you're trying to, you know, remind yourself of why is it that my own path is narrow like this? Because where we often get it wrong as Christians is where we is where we draw a line and have a table. Right on the left side, we have we have what is sin and what is not sin. Notice that he's dealing with the problem of sexual immorality directly here because this was the core problem that they were facing in this first century. Um, Gresho Roman society, right? But the word sanctification itself is not restricted to sexual purity. The word sanctification, like we saw in the Amplified, simply means to be set apart. And in its original sense, set apart primarily has nothing to do with sin. You know? So if you take a cup, right? Like the cup that Belteshazzar. You no, know, Belteshazzar was... Or the, the cup that King Darius, was it King Darius, right? Who took the cup from the temple, from God's house and drank from it. You see, there's nothing wrong in putting wine if you want to go by a strict de definition of is this sin or is it not sin, right? There's nothing wrong in itself or by taking wine, putting it in a cup and drinking it. In fact, that's what they were doing for all the weeks and months that that party lasted for. They were taking wine. They were putting it in the cup and they were drinking it. But what was wrong that led to many, many tekel upasin 
was that he used a cup that is set apart for that purpose. Because God is set apart, the only vessels he can use are the vessels that are set apart. And so there are certain instructions that God will bring into our lives. And those instructions are not a matter of sin. Those instructions are a matter of his holiness, his set-apart nature. It is possible that you can do those things and still end up in heaven. But the primary question at stake for the one who has been purchased is not ending up in heaven. The primary question that's at stake is pleasing God. Pleasing God, becoming the vessel that can host the purpose of God. So because God's will is for our sanctification, there are certain instructions, there are certain commandments that God will bring into our lives that are not about sin, but are about our sanctification. It's not as though the blood of Jesus cannot redeem you from those things. No, but it's about you being usable in God's hands. It's about the thing that glorifies God, that that, that brings him pleasure, that, that, that reaches close enough to the original desire and the original intention that God had for you when he created you. Also, if God's will for us is our sanctification, it means that there are many things that God is going to allow into our lives, even against our prayer, and his purpose is our sanctification. If you know this, your, it, it will help you set up yourself to endure suffering, to endure contradictions, right? To, to stand firm and see the glory of God through everything that you go through. That everything that God allows in my life is for my sanctification. So it's a mistake for a believer to allow trial, delay, tribulation to make you bitter. Of course, all of us get discouraged and weary. Right, And I'm not proposing that you know we live in falsehood, we live in denial. No, we're supposed to be upfront and honest with God, right? About whatever condition that we're putting. But one thing that difficulty or circumstance is not supposed to make of us is that when we come out of it, it's not supposed to diminish our, our, our faith. It's not supposed to diminish the brightness and the intensity of our trust in God. The process itself might be difficult, might be unbearable, but when we come out on the outside, God's intention is that it would have made us deeper, it would have made us, it would have made us more gentle, more loving, it would have silenced the voice of our humanity more, and it is more the voice of Christ that is blazing through us. And in God's sovereign wisdom, he has discovered that <laughs> he has discovered that sometimes too much comfort does not accomplish that in a believer's life. So friends, everybody who is named after God, everybody who is named after God is apportioned a measure of suffering. You see, and the extent to which suffering will, will, will perpetuate in our lives is the extent to which we understand that suffering is only a messenger of God. You see, that's why the apostles could dare to tell people that we that we rejoice in suffering. Because there's no other basis upon which upon which that makes sense. The only basis is that we know we, we have access to a to what you might call a hidden knowledge. We know that it doesn't that this pressure I'm feeling, yes, I don't like it, and yes, it's not going to stay forever, but but the but the moment for which it stays. It's its purpose 
is to produce something. So I commit myself to God. And I commit it to God. Right? Now, in this context, of course, Paul is speaking about sexual immorality because in the Gratio Roman society of the first century, it was a sexually immoral environment, right? It was sexually loose. And a lot of people have asked the question, um, what is so wrong with sexual immorality? Or at least how and why is it different from every other kind of sin? <laughs> why does God call it out specially? Why does the scripture seem to take a special emphasis on the problem of sexual immorality? Right? And that's the aspect of sanctification that Paul focuses on. Yeah. What do you think about this yourself? Um, if, if I can try. Yes. So I think the Bible, um, the part of the Bible says that the sexual sin is the sin we commit against ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that has set it that, you know, that makes it as it, I don't know the word you use, but that makes it a bit different or more grievous than mm -hmm. the other sins. So that's just my understanding of, of your question. Okay, because it is a sin against yourself. Mm. So can I add? Yes, please. Um, so I believe strongly that God cares so much about where he dwells. And if you remember when Jesus mm. went into the temple, right? Um mm. And he saw people buying and selling and, you know, doing all sorts of things. He was really vexed and really angry. That's one of the places where Jesus was really upset and, you know, threw tables and because he cared so much about his father's house. Mm. And it's the same thing when it comes to um, our bodies mm. because God doesn't, God no longer dwells in like um, houses made with hands or what he has chosen to dwell in our hearts or in our bodies. So he's mm. very particular about where his spirit is, where his spirit resides. And um, sexual immorality is one of those things that God will not stand because it's your body and your body is God's temple. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Your answers are amazing, right? Um, Nancy talked about the fact that the sexual sin is sin against oneself, right? And then you do, you said God cares about where he dwells and he has chosen to dwell in our bodies. And what that means, if you put those two answers together, is that nothing breaks the principle of set apart, right? Like sexual immorality, right? Nothing breaks that principle of set apart. Remember that this is what it means that God is holy, 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 holy is the Lord God. He is separate. If God is going to work with you and I, he's going to bring laws, instructions of separation, just because that's who he is. That's his nature, right? And then he has chosen that we will be his physical body. Remember, we said at the beginning that God is spirit. We will be his physical expression on earth. Right, so sexual immorality, any kind of sexual immorality, and sexual immorality, friends, is not just sexual intercourse. 
right? Because unfortunately, we live in a generation where someone can tell you that, eh, we live in this, we're not married, we live in the same house, we sleep on the same bed. You know, yes, we do things, but there's no intercourse. You know, the word is broader than just intercourse, right? The word is is any violation of sexual separation, any violation of sexual purity, right? Now, of course, the sin of sexual immorality is not unforgivable, right? No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that the sin of sexual immorality is unforgivable. The Bible does not teach that. But rather, the Bible teaches that this is the most grievous violation of the principle of separation. It's the most grievous affront to the principle of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. Right? Because <laughs> in that scripture, in 1 Corinthians, right? I think chapter 6 that Nancy mentioned, it says that he who joins himself to a halot, Right, and by halos, he's not even he's not he wasn't referring to wasn't necessarily referring to a professional prostitute. Was rather referring to anybody who is not set apart, right? Who is not separated. That he who joins himself to a halot has become one flesh, one flesh with her. So it means that sexual immorality or sexual activity breaks your bodily separation in God's eyes. It means that that vessel cannot can no longer be usable to the extent to which God wants to use it, and it's not because God doesn't love you; it's rather because God is set apart. He's set apart. So if you violate His dwelling place, the Bible says that He can even destroy because of that. So Paul wants these Thessalonian Christians to know that, even though they are living in a morally decadent society you know in this society people had a lot of slaves and that meant that they had so much time and what they spent doing was exploring all kinds of sexual relationships and vices if you read about life in the first century Greco-Roman world there were no boundaries there were no restraints for sexual life people did exactly as their bodies dictated you know one of the one of the arguments shallow arguments right for indulgences but this is how i'm feeling you know love has been reduced to a feeling love has been reduced to 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 an instinct to a natural hunger but you see we said that none of us is, a, is an original being right none of us is self-created so it means that what we call our desires the thing that our body really wants to do is a lie at the very best, it's a secondary desire. God did not create us to be governed by those desires, to follow our desires wherever they lead. When you ask, when they ask you, why did you do it? You say he did it because you felt like doing it. That's not what it means to work with God. Right? But rather, God created us to be masters of those appetites before we possess territories for God. Before we possess lands for God, God hopes and intends that we will possess our bodies, that we will possess our vessels, that the basis upon which we can take higher ground for the Lord is that we have fully possessed our own vessels. 
right? That were fully possessed our own vessels. So this is why God hates sexual immorality, because it's a sin that requires joining your body and violating its separation. And the only context in which the joining of bodies is permitted by God is in the context of covenant. When I come into the covenant of marriage that binds me in my conscience to the best of my ability, that this is the bone of my bone. This is the flesh of my flesh. We are on a journey of becoming one. In that context, sexual intercourse is a blessing. God blesses it. God loves it because in his eyes, the two are one. Right? So the violation of set, so, so the principle of set apart is not broken when sexual intercourse happens. You see? Now, there are many other philosophical reasons why we can give, right? To say, okay, this is why you can get STDs or whatever other reasons we can give. But none of those is the foundation for why God hates sexual immorality. The foundation for it is that it breaks the principle of set apart. So it is the will of God that we sanctify ourselves, right? That each of us learns how to possess his own vessels in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So anybody who does not know God has no other recourse but to live as though my desires are the ultimate. But when I begin to know God, I begin to realize that, oh, he's my creator. And not only is he my creator, he's also my redeemer. I am his, I'm his possession, not only by creation, but by redemption. So it means that now, because I've been bought, because I was made, my desires, the passions in my soul are secondary. I need to test them. I need to examine them. And I need to see a day of God and steward them in the direction of the will of God. Even though God wants you to be holy, he will not impose his holiness on any of us. We will have to make the sovereign decision by the grace of God to walk in holiness. I want to touch quickly on this point in verse 4 that says that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification. So he's saying that you should know how to master your body. He's saying that each of us, our bodies are different right? Our thresholds are different. The thing that is not a temptation for Mr. Y or Ms. Y can be a massive step too far for Mr. X or Ms. S, Ms. Ms. X. And you see, the thing with sexual temptation, right, is that <laughs> the, the evidence and the verdict you need is in your own body. You are the one that knows how it's doing you, right? You're the one that knows how you feel. And so one of the greatest virtues that you can have is the virtue of sincerity the ability to be truthful and to say this thing is beyond my pay grade yes i've not yet fallen but i can see that it's beyond my pay grade and to flee to flee to flee to identify what is beyond your pay grade from afar and to run when you see any form of sexual um, misappropriation begin to happen in your body you begin to ask yourself the hard questions and you begin to direct them he said 
I was not made for myself. This body is not mine. It is for glorifying God. It's for pleasing God. So you see that even though subsequently in this letter, Paul is going to talk about the issue of judgment, right? The primary motivation for holiness is not the fear of judgment. In fact, he doesn't even use that primarily, even though he talks about the judgment to come subsequently. He doesn't even use that as a bait, as a stick to, to, <laughs> um, to provoke compliance, right? Rather, he bases it on the, on the question of love. Do I love the Lord? Do I love him enough to recognize that he bought me, he gave everything for me, and that he's worthy as creator and as redeemer to be loved in return through separation, through being set apart? Each of you should know how to possess his own vessels. Each of us should know what are the gates of my life, right? What are the things in my life that are gateways to temptation, that are gateways to disobedience? And those things, I'm supposed to shut them. I'm not supposed to say, oh, but X, Y, Z watches X, Y, Z and doesn't feel anything. Why am I not allowed to watch it? No. Each of us is supposed to learn by the Holy Ghost, by the grace of God, by the signs of the Spirit in our bodies, what God requires of us. And we're supposed to find grace before God to walk in the path that he has determined for us to walk in. Verse 7 says, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. He did not call us so that we can use our lives to pursue our own desires, our own agenda. But he called us to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. In every age, not just in the first century, Christianity friends will always be countercultural just in case you come under pressure to change your convictions or change your behavior just because it, it's so different especially as we engage with the world you know especially as we go into workplaces go into campuses you will find that that your tendency for kindness for mercy for forgiveness even as basic as those is not shared unfortunately and there's a tendency for you to want to take on the mode of the world. Okay, everybody fights for themselves. You know, everybody, you know, um, is uses dirty language once in a while, you know, you know, um, to get a pass in certain areas. Christianity will always, in every age, in every circumstance, Christianity will always be countercultural. To always be countercultural. Because Christianity... It's about a God who is holy. It's about a God who is set apart. And my prayer and the cry of my heart is that indeed that through these words that God will bring us to the place of purifying, to the place of understanding, to the place where we choose by grace to set ourselves apart. That he will open our eyes to begin to see the areas where we have defiled our consecration the areas where he's calling us to tighten up, the areas where he's calling us to let go of the, of the, of the cravings, the strivings of the flesh and coming to a different plane of life. And I pray that we'll have the courage to walk a different path, 
Yes, that will have the courage to obey God, that will have the courage to follow him and to see his light shine in us in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So now, I want us to read from verse 9 to verse 12, so that when we come next week, we can focus next week on the day of the Lord, the return of the Lord. So can you read for us, Mary, from verse 9 to verse 12? Yes, of verse 9 to verse 12. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we have commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Okay, thank you. And so Paul um, gives us one of the deepest marks of maturity, if not the deepest mark of maturity. Now, you know, it's, it's important for us to have our values recalibrated, right? In this day and age where a lot of things is presented to us in the name of Christianity, that the deepest mark of, one of the deepest marks of Christianity is not the things that we do, or the things that we don't do, right? It's not the things that we give up. Because you can see that there are many people who are not Christians that are actually able to live a disciplined life, you know, that are able to, you can say, set themselves apart, right? Yes, because there is a, there is a capacity in the soul to be able to direct the body, and the body itself is more flexible than we think it is. When you start going on a particular path, your body may revolt for a while because it's a it's a new path, you know. Just I was talking to Yudi about her experience in Canada when she arrived. You know, she was feeling cold at 14 degrees initially. But now over a year later, um at minus one, she doesn't even feel as cold anymore as she did at four, at 14 degrees, right? That shows us that our body can be can be tamed, it can be corrected, it can be directed by the power of the soul, even, right? And it is because that is possible, it's because that is possible that God even comes to us in the first place and says, I want you to be set apart. God is not making a demand of us of something that is impossible, especially not with the help of his spirit. So there is no temptation, like the scripture says, that has overtaken you that is more than you can bear. There is no, and you can say that there's no instruction that God gives us that is beyond our capacity to bear. But the mark of maturity is our walk of love. That's why Paul said to this church that I know that you excel in love all through Macedonia towards all the all the brethren, right? Your walk of love is spoken well of, is, is manifest, is there for all to see. But I want you to intensify. You know, this is our theme for next year. I want you to intensify in your love. Now, my question for us is, why is love the mark of maturity? Why is our ability to love the brethren, right? 
our be the manifestation of the love of God in our lives. Why is it the mark of maturity? Because there is a certain doctrine of holiness, right? That that places holiness at the apex, right, of the Christian of the manifestation of the Christian's life, which is not wrong in itself, but that holiness, right, often comes at the expense of the manifestation of love. It's a holiness of segregation, not separation. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a holiness of distance, not difference. What do you think? Why is love the mark of maturity? Um, let me see if I can try. So, if if we are looking at the, you know the. If you're looking at the Christian, a Christian life, and our goal is to become like Christ, mm -hmm. let me approach it from that angle. Then, what Christ like when we when we make love the like love is equated to maturity if if we're able to love like Christ. And I'm looking for a way to tie it back to the commandment that says we should love God and love one another as as we love ourselves and that is like the ultimate thing because um part of our our work our christian work is to is how we relate with each other that's so far that's that's how i'm able to put it there's there's <laughs> some there's my want to say but i'm not but i'm very language is not there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 i think that you're getting close Definitely to the heart of it. So remember the three things that we said are the foundation of Christianity, right? Your faith, the faith that works, right? Your labor of love and your patience of hope, right? Do you realize that of all these elements and everything else, the, the only one that to remain is love. All of them are temporary. The your work of faith is necessary because you've not seen Jesus face to face, right? That's what necessitates your work of faith. You've not seen God as he is. And so you are trusting, you are trusting, you are believing, you are trusting. And because God is locked up in the spirit, every attempt, right, at engaging God is going to have to be by faith. It's going to be faith from first to last. But the scripture tells us that the time is coming when we are going to see him face to face, that right now, that that because of the fall, our view of God is blood. We cannot see God as he is. We cannot even see Christ as he is. But a day is coming when I will stand face to face with my Lord Jesus. You see, in that day, it will no longer be by faith. It will be almost the kind of experience, right, that Thomas had when he put his hands through the through the holes that were made by the nails, and then for him, it was no longer by faith. <laughs> He, he he had felt it and he knew that Jesus was alive. That day is coming in our lives. And you see, that day is the consummation of our hope. So even the instrument, the element, the foundation of hope will be done away with on that day because a day is coming when our hope will be actualized. The hope that we will wear the same glorious body will be actualized. When that day comes, the only thing that will be left is our love for God. That's going to be the basis of our loyalty to him. 
that's going to be the basis upon which our salvation will be sealed. The fact that God has secured a people that love him. That's the reason why God is passing us through the process of time. So that our faith can be purified. So that our faith cannot be is not based on the things we get from God. Which is why he allows suffering in our life sometimes. But so that our faith is based purely on who God is. On the record of his love. Like I always say, when there is no problem to solve, because all problems are solved. When there is no breakthrough to be had, because all breakthroughs have been had. When there is no enemy to defeat, because he has been cast into the lake of fire for eternity to eternity. The only thing that, that will be left is our love for Jesus. And you see, love was the foundation of creation. right? Those two elements that makes God worthy to be obeyed. He didn't have to create. A lot of people argue that I didn't ask to be created, right? So why did God create me? The answer is love. Yes, he knew that it would be much more worth it for you to be born than for you not to be born if you get to know him. And so because of the, of the joy of love, he was willing to take the risk to make sure that you came in and, and that you had a chance to experience what it means to come into the love of God that existed before eternity. Love was the basis of creation. And love was also the basis of redemption. Yes. If God so loved the world, the world of people, not the world of things, but the world of people, the world of you and I, he so loved the world that he paid the highest price so that we will not be destroyed. So if love was the basis of my creation, and love was the basis of my of my redemption. It means that the, the closer I get to God, the more I set myself apart. The purpose of my setting of, 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 of my setting myself apart is so that I can experience more deeply, more richly, more fully the love of God. And you see, there is nobody who experiences that dimension of the love of God that does not pour it out. And you see, there are many things in our physical life that obscures the love of God in our lives because it's possible for you to be to become like a river that is stuck. You are experiencing the love of God and you are not releasing it. And you see, in that state, your life is going to look almost similar to the person who's not even experiencing the love of God at all. Because there is no use for a river, a flowing river that has been stopped. The love of God was not meant to be contained. It was meant to overflow. But you see, because we are, we, are, we are trapped, let's put it like this, in the natural body that has natural needs, there's a tendency for us to be so encircled, so engrossed by the difficulties, the dilemma and the need of our natural bodies that we don't realize that there's a river in us waiting to break out. And that's why Paul said to them, right, that concerning brotherly love, even though I don't need to write to you anymore because you are taught by God to love one another, we urge you to increase more and more, to love God more and to love the brethren more. The person, the person who loves the brethren has seen the ultimate reality because when your view, 
when your when your lenses right are still bound to earth it means that you are you 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 are quite easily influenced by offenses by by conditions on earth by difficulties on earth by the things that highlights the imperfections of men on earth but the one who loves who loves like god is the one who has seen him clearly is the one who has seen most clearly if the most important commandment of scripture is to love the lord your god with all your heart with all your mind and with all your strength then it means that the true mark the true mark of maturity is how much I love God. And you see, the love of God is a practical thing. It's not an emotional thing. My love for God is going to lead me to set myself apart for God. And the more I set my, myself apart, if my holiness is true, if it is genuine, it's going to lead to greater love for the Lord. And that greater love for the Lord is going to overflow into love for others. And Paul says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Wow. Do you see what he's saying here? That, you know, like leading a quiet life is not something people aspire to, right? People aspire to greatness, if you like. People aspire to the noise of life, right? People, people aspire to be on the pages, on the top pages of life, to be plastered all over in life. They, essentially, people aspire to the noise of life. But he's saying <laughs> that, there's a, that there's a love that can steal you and I. There's a love that can calm us. So that it doesn't matter whether we have plenty or we have little. doesn't matter the heights that we hit in life. Our true satisfaction comes from the quietness of that love from the quietness of the presence of God. We are content with him. The offenses on the outside, the difficulties on the outside, the contentions on the outside, the contradictions on the outside cannot touch that peace, cannot touch that, that joy, cannot touch that glory. And the person who knows this experience is going to find that their walk of faith it's going to be transformed from an inner reality to an outward manifestation of character and that you will lack nothing. When we return next week, we're going to see how all of this, this posture leads into the right waiting posture for the return of Jesus. Because it is the return of Jesus that completes our hope that brings to manifestation everything that we have trusted, that we have believed for, that we have set ourselves apart for. Apart for, Thank God for the victories of it. Yes, thank God for the breakthroughs of it. Thank God for the joys of it. But there is a greater joy that is worth separating ourselves for. And I pray for us, friends, that our love will intensify in the year ahead, that we will see God's church not as divided by generations, divided by denominations, divided by mandates, but as one body, one body, that every saint, every saint, even the least of the saints that God brings into our space will experience the power of our separation, the power of the love that we have for God. Yes. And I pray that we will lack nothing. 
that we will not lack the things our hands need, that we will not lack the things that we need for, for the practical needs of life, that we will not lack the things that we need to stand firm in the grace of God, but that our hands will be fully supplied with everything that we need. In the mighty name of Jesus.